0: You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. I think people are paying much more attention now to the geopolitical risk, the risk that a government is going to simply intervene in a way that disrupts international trade and investment.
1: Yeah, we're dealing with clients almost every day who are looking to diversify the geography of their supply locations.
2: A more fragmented world means altering trade patterns.
3: Is
1: this a new Cold
3: War? Very obviously it is. Just because in the West we're reticent about calling it one doesn't mean it isn't. Welcome to the Loadstar
4: podcast. My name is Mike King, and this deep dive is looking at the future of global trade because, in case you hadn't noticed, the world is becoming a more divided place and the implications for globalisation itself are multifaceted.
5: The mayor of Kyiv says two people have been killed and another wounded in the latest Russian air attack on the Ukrainian capital.
4: Weeks after the Chinese Coast Guard used water cannon against these two wooden boats, they're back with supplies for Filipino troops, sailing towards the Second Thomas
1: Shoal in the South China Sea. There's a major flashpoint in Asia which has been brewing for decades. It's about claiming and sometimes even forming new land, about redrawing the borders of nations.
0: In 2008, Samsung's smartphone manufacturing facilities were scattered throughout mainland China. Just 15 years later, those factories have disappeared.
4: As you can hear there, the Middle East is in flames. We have war in Ukraine. Nagorno Karabakh has been back in the news as Armenia and Azerbaijan continue their decades long animosity, often fueled by regional and neighboring power brokers. In 2023, a host of African countries have suffered coups, while organized crime threatens the very basics of civil society and democracy in parts of Latin America. Meanwhile, tensions rise in the Balkans and in the South China Sea, all of which serves to remind that even as a post-COVID world emerges, one where economic and trade growth is tepid and inflation high, geopolitical Russians can quickly transform the logistics outlook. Take the terrible war in Ukraine. Of course, it has killed the trade between Russia and the West, and it has cut off the thriving China to Western Europe rail business. But it's also changed the nature of air travel and cargo operations over to Alex Lenayne, Lodestar publisher.
5: Air freight, because of its speed, it's always influenced by geopolitical or other disruptions almost immediately. And that can be both a benefit and a disadvantage to the industry. So what we saw when Russia invaded Ukraine was, was a multitude of effects, really. The closure of Russian airspace hit loads of carriers which effectively meant capacity came out of the market and there were additional costs because the routes came longer. Some airlines, such as the Japanese carriers, Finnair, they had to suspend operations for a while there. Um, The other major impact was the loss of airbridge cargo from the market. What we're hearing now is that the loss of ABC caused something of a vacuum in the region, and there are new operators looking to fill that vacuum. Apparently, there are many new routes springing up between China and Russia via Central Asia. One theory is that not only does this help Russia with imports and exports, but it's also a way for the country to snap up and hold on to capacity, which could benefit it in the event of the war ending. If and when it does end, of course, the airspace would reopen, costs would come down, capacity would increase again. But I think a lot of that rather hidden and, dare I say it, possibly smuggling-focused capacity in Central Asia is likely to remain.
4: The US is also increasingly a hotbed of division. Some say politics there has not been this hateful since perhaps the civil war. One area where there is quite often cross-party agreement is on the existential threat that many in the US now see from China. Fears that are also shared in Europe, but perhaps not to quite the same degree. Michael, every global strategist at a bank, believes this rivalry
3: with China and other countries is not going away anytime soon. Is this a new Cold War? Very obviously it is. Just because in the West we're reticent about calling it one doesn't mean it isn't. Russia very clearly calls it one. Iran calls it one. China in its own internal rhetoric uses not exactly that phrase, but language, which is very, very similar. Even if in English, when it's reaching out to the world, it says it doesn't want to see a cold war mentality. Now you could argue it's chicken and egg, but China is saying that in English and internally reacting to what we are doing. But that still means it's a Cold War, even if we don't declare it to be one. Another thought leader takes the view that geopolitics
4: is changing the future of, or even the very nature of, globalization. Mark Levinson is an economist, historian, and journalist with a long track record of writing and speaking about economic and business issues, especially globalization. He's also the author of the widely read The Box, and he has a new book out called Outside the Box.
0: Globalization was already in the midst of change really before COVID and before the outbreak of uh, the war in Ukraine. Already we're seeing companies concerned about excess exposure to China. We were already seeing companies concerned about risk in their supply chains. What's happened is that that whole process has been sped up. And then I think people are paying much more attention now To the geopolitical risk, the risk that a government is going to simply intervene in a way that disrupts international trade and investment. So I think there's heightened sensitivity to it. There's clearly more attention at the top level of corporations to risk in their supply chains, and that's affecting the way that businesses think about globalization. Nearshoring and reshoring
4: are concepts that have been lauded as solutions when supply chains are deemed to have failed and more resilience is demanded, or when there is potential political win for those calling for an end to offshoring. Yet, for the most part, efficiency and cost have tended to trump built in resilience. Most shippers have simply concluded that the extra overheads of higher inventories and more complex supply chains would render their businesses less competitive. This rationale has tended to favor China, whose role as the world's factory has largely remained intact, until recent years, that is. Its aging population and rising production costs, its severe lockdowns and travel restrictions during the COVID pandemic, the introduction of US tariffs on its exports, and its diminished
3: legal protection for businesses have all led to China's appeal waning. In terms of China remaining the world's factory, for now, it absolutely is. We are seeing supply chain shift. And for example, the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements, recently released a report which shows that the US and China are decoupling. But what's happening is that supply chains are shifting from China to the rest of Asia and then on the US. So for example, a textile factory in Vietnam may make the clothes that go to America, but the material and uh, the yarn, the cotton, et cetera, and even the looms all come from China first of all before the value added in Vietnam is then shift off to the US. Does that mean that we're as far as we're going to go in terms of global decoupling and deindustrialization in China? The answer is no. Logically, what that tells you is that therefore much, much more supply chain shifting needs to happen because if you're only decoupling one step removed, that isn't enough. America will ultimately turn around and say, okay, we need to see the supply chains moved completely so that the looms aren't made in China, the yarn isn't made in China, the thread isn't made in China, et cetera, et cetera. And that involves a real bifurcation of the global economy on a scale we just simply haven't seen yet. As Michael
4: Every noted there, it's far too early to think the bonds forged with China over many decades are close to breaking, but the political winds are undoubtedly changing. In a more fragmented world, one in which the post-World War II rules-based order that has enabled globalization is losing its luster, and every is not alone in arguing that more supply chain resilience is needed to guard against reliance on China, a partner that many think has already proved itself unreliable. The old lexicon of reshoring or near-shoring has now morphed into more political buzzwords such as friend-shoring and ally-shoring, and of course its early days But there is hard evidence that a shift of manufacturing capacity out of China is underway, albeit a slow and gradual one. The latest data from Drury Maritime Research outlines that China is losing market share of exports into the US. For example, China's share of US container imports from Asia has dropped dramatically since the two countries' trade war erupted in 2018. It's dropped from 69% in 2017 to 59% in the first five months of 2023. By contrast, Vietnam has increased its share of U.S. container imports from 7 to 8% in 2018 to 13% over the first five months of this year. Korea, Malaysia and Thailand have also been beneficiaries, notes Drury. Indeed, China's share of U.S. goods imports fell to the lowest level since 2006 in the 12 months through July, according to a new report by the U.S. Census Bureau. While an American Chamber of Commerce survey in August found 40% of US companies are already redirecting investment destined for China to other countries or are planning to do so. Back to Levinson.
0: Manufacturing was already moving away from China before the pandemic and before these geopolitical tensions because China is no longer an inexpensive place to manufacture. We saw many companies beginning to shift operations, particularly labor intensive operations to other countries in Southeast Asia, to places like Bangladesh and to India. And so those trends were already underway. We've seen now, I think that hasn't perhaps gotten so much attention, but maybe the most significant for companies that want to manufacture in China has been the arrests and detentions of business executives. There haven't been a lot of those so far as is known, but if you're running a company in another country Do you want to send your executive to China to oversee operations if you think that there's some risk that your executive may be accused of gaining access to secret information or something like that? Companies are afraid of sending their executives to China. Executives are afraid of going to China. And that's going to make it very difficult to manage supply chains that are based in China. These sophisticated supply chains require frequent contact companies that organize these supply chains travel frequently and if people are afraid to go to China they will move their supply chains
4: of course as mentioned southeast asia has many of the demographics and attractions that some people feel that china does not but there are also many many challenges over to neil johnson who's the co-founder and partner at tnet it's based in singapore
1: yeah we're dealing with clients almost every day who are looking to diversify the geography of their supply locations. But I think it's important to to sort of, yes, acknowledge that there is a decoupling from China, but there's other things happening around the world which is sort of driving all of this. So I think the big one that we've been dealing with, in fact, uh, in this region, Southeast Asia region for a while, is the changing demographics. So you've got a growing middle class emerging in various countries, you know, Indonesia, the middle class is going to be huge. They're going to have tremendous spending power. Now, yes, Indonesia is definitely going to benefit from the, the China sort of plus one or plus two or plus 12, whichever it is strategy. But Indonesia in its own right needs additional investment in logistics. And that has been, it's been forthcoming, but it's been forthcoming very, very slowly. So there are new ports being built, the airport is getting some investment, but it's still not going to be sufficient to meet the needs of that growing sort of middle class and and beyond. So Indonesia is the largest economy in Southeast Asia, and yes, it's going to benefit from the decoupling aspect. It needs more infrastructure, and that's right across the archipelago. There is infrastructure It's creaking, but then there's also the issues around that infrastructure. So just taking that particular country as as a case in point, and you can draw sort of parallels with the Philippines and Vietnam here, having the port infrastructure in place is one thing. Having government departments that have got the know-how to sort of smooth the way for businesses to flourish, being able to issue licenses, being able to get out of the way When infrastructure is going in there, when money is made available, rather than being sort of unnecessary gatekeeper, those are critical things. And it's still something which is quite slow in coming around the region. And I think as far as the, the other reasons driving the diversification supply, you've also got more free trade agreements in place. So people are more willing to look at manufacturing or selling into certain markets. So yeah, the China thing is very real. Mexico and Vietnam, I I think, are the two most immediate beneficiaries, perhaps Bangladesh with the garment trade to a lesser degree. But the decoupling from China is a very, very long-term project compared to the speed with which carriers can, for example, switch on and switch off services in order to, for example, replace a semiconductor plant that's been churning out products very, very smoothly and consistently in China, that's going to take three to five years to replace in even a well-developed economy such as Singapore or Malaysia. So there are issues with the whole decoupling thing, but there are other drivers beyond that decoupling, which are going to drive this diversification. And the carriers are coming. We're seeing flexing of shipping services. We're seeing more investment in freighter services, more investment in airlines around the region. So, so, yeah, I think the physical part is probably the, the easier part to deal with. I think that's been consistent over the years.
4: India, too, is doing its utmost to attract major manufacturers and with some success, not least due to its young population of 1.4 billion people, ample land, and impressive cargo and infrastructure-focused investments, which are making it increasingly attractive to foreign investors, including the likes of Apple and Foxconn. And India is not alone in that area of the world in bringing in more foreign investment. Lars Jensen, CEO of Vespucci Maritime, expects the entire Indian Ocean region to thrive in the years ahead. And this will, of course, have consequences for the strategies of those supply and build the ships, planes, and know-how, which make supply chains function efficiently. What I expect to see likely over the next, call it even 10 to 20 years, one of the large growth Indians we're going to see is going to be what I tend to call the Indian Ocean Rim. So the countries around the Indian Ocean, Africa, on, on uh, especially demographics and imports going over to there, you're going to see, at least if India gets their act together with bureaucracy, going to see India as a major growth engine. The Middle East already is quite a growth engine. So the whole Indian Ocean Rim is going to be a locus for a lot of growth, but we are so used... To a world where the major trades are Asia, Europe, and Asia, North America, and maybe Atlantic, this east-west, and then everything else is north-south. That is going to change over the next decade and two. This is going to be a much more complex landscape where it is not the traditional trunk routes that are necessarily the growth drivers that we've been used to. And of course, all of these changes to trade flows affect the demand for shipping. Luisa Rodriguez is the Economic Affairs Officer covering transport logistics at the United Nations Conference on Trade and Development, UNCTAD. She's also the co-author of UNCTAD's new release review of Maritime Transport 2023.
2: A more fragmented world means altering trade patterns, and this could mean perhaps longer distances. For some commodities, it will depend on the commodity, I would say. We have seen that, for instance, in the context of this disruption created by the war in Ukraine, we have seen an important increase in the distance traveled for some products. We're talking about grains being sourced from US, from Brazil. These alternative suppliers are further away, so this means longer distance for this type of commodities. In the case of containerized trade, the story is a bit different in the sense that what we have seen in analyzing this containerized trade data is that there has been an intra-Asia increase and that the districts have gone down. So this is an interesting development and indicates that there is this importance or predominance of intra-Asia trade in containerized trade that is set to continue. And that has an important bearing in overall containerized trade flows.
4: For container shipping in particular, all of this raises a number of questions. In a world where the fastest growth is regional, have container shipping lines been making the right investments? And what does this mean for the air cargo industry and the type of freighters that we might need in the future and the airports that they will serve? Over to Levinson and Lodane.
0: The ultra-large vessels are certainly suitable for Asia to Europe, if the owners are able to keep them filled? And I think that's a big question. People, of course, have already forgotten the really bad times that the industry experienced before the pandemic, when most companies were losing lots and lots of money, and many companies were going bust because they couldn't keep their vessels filled. These ultra-large vessels are going to be serving a market, a very important market to be sure. The Asia to Europe market is not going away, but Are they really ideal for the growth markets? For example, it appears that there's going to be rapid growth in international trade involving India, involving Indonesia, involving a number of other countries that previously had much smaller roles in the world trading system. Does it make sense to operate an ultra-large vessel on a relatively short route between, say, China and India? I don't know the answer to that question, but it's one that I'm sure the ship lines have to be thinking about because the economics may not be there for these sorts of investments. That said, I think all of the ship lines have been struggling with what to do with all the money that they earned during the pandemic. That's certainly a nice problem to have, whether it makes sense to put those proceeds into freight forwarders road hauliers, airlines, that's a whole other question. And we're going to have to see whether the ship lines are actually capable of managing those sorts of investments as part of their portfolios.
5: Demand for smaller aircraft is already on the rise, particularly for e-commerce. And for sure, if supply chains got shorter, then aircraft won't need to be as large. But that would also be dependent on demand, supply of capacity and so on. It might also be the case though, that in a more regional world, destinations might become more targeted as in shippers and forwarders might want to fly to secondary airports directly instead of passenger-focused hubs, which will rely on freighters rather than bellies. It could also perhaps impact Middle Eastern or, or carriers that do transit stops. I spoke to a European shipper recently who said that while they continue to source from various parts of Asia and that wasn't likely to change, he was always on the lookout for direct flights as there's less chance of damage and disruption.
4: Not only is trade getting more regional in nature and forecast to become more fragmented as reliance on China declines, but the nature of that trade and where it grows will also be affected by other factors, including population growth rates, and of course, by the products that we want to buy and the products that technology does not render obsolete, according to Levinson.
0: What I do see is some fundamental shifts in the world economy that are going to dramatically affect the flow of international trade. One of them is simply demographics. Many countries are experiencing very slow population growth. Some are experiencing decline. Median ages are rising around the world. In Japan, almost uh, half the population is more than 50 years old. Older consumers don't buy so much stuff. And this is a fundamental force that is going to constrain the growth of goods trade there just isn't going to be as much growth in demand for the kinds of products that move in containers as has been the case in in previous years some kinds of products are just going to go away as traded goods what's going to happen for example as electric vehicles become more popular around the world electric vehicles have thousands and thousands fewer parts than internal combustion vehicles that's a whole category of cargo I'm talking pistons, and I'm talking mufflers and I'm talking catalytic converters. Fewer of these are going to be needed and that's less stuff to move in containers. And I think we're seeing that a lot of what used to be investment in machinery, fixed capital is now investment in software. This is also affecting the flow of trade in goods. A company may not need to replace its machines as often if it can update the software rather than updating the hardware. So, these are factors that have nothing to do with Ukraine or COVID or US China tension, but are just fundamental forces that are going to cause international goods trade to grow more slowly in the future.
4: The Lodestar will be returning to many of these themes in the podcasts to come. And I'm sure we've prompted as many questions there, solutions about what globalization and trade look like in a world that is getting more fragmented and divided. But a final point. Many would agree that the biggest challenge currently facing the planet is global warming and the biggest challenge for the shipping and logistics industries is how we go about contributing to a solution by finding ways to green supply chains. But there is perhaps a fundamental flaw in much of this thinking. Decarbonization solutions in general, but especially those focused on the business of trade, assume that the great powers will collaborate and that the World Trade Organization, the UN, IOTA, and the IMO will lead the way, or at least bring people together. Not that existing fissures in relation will widen, leaving the power of these enabling global institutions diminished. But as some of the contributors in this podcast have argued, it is perhaps more rational to assume that existing conflicts will deepen rather than be overcome. That confrontations between ideas and ideology and forms of government will intensify, and that a new type of geopolitical power system even, or a new Cold War, could emerge that will, by definition, transform the nature of trade and therefore what we think of as globalisation, maybe, maybe not, we will see. But if in future collaboration proves to be the exception rather than the rule, what does that mean for climate change solutions and the decarbonisation of supply
3: chains? I'll leave the final word to Rabobank's Michael Avery. In terms of decarbonization, it's very clear. If you want to do it rapidly on the scale we want to, you have to involve China. And that isn't going to be possible if the West wants to take supply chains out of China and move them back into Europe, which Europe just said it wants to do or into America, which America wants to do. So you can't have rapid decarbonization on the scale we need and not include China. But I think the far more logical outcome. And I said this all along from years back is that that means we will decouple. We'll have slower decarbonization, but we'll do it in fragmented pockets where Europe and America, or maybe Europe and America together will have their own green standards, their own green champions, their own green supply chains. And China will have its, and the argument will be over who gets to sell to the global south because Europe will sell to Europe. America will sell to America. China will sell to China. That's again, a very 19th century world. And the problem for Europe in particular is they don't have any of the minerals required. So you can decarbonize only if you're prepared to get a supply chain that works for you. China's got one, America can set one up, either domestically or via Australia. Europe's got nothing. So there are some very hard choices that need to be made there.
4: I'd like to thank TAC Index, the lodestar's air freight data provider and Zeniter, our sea freight data supplier, Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.